Welcome to Education Suspended, a podcast focused on exploring, engaging, and dialoguing with those in education who are passionate about changing the status quo and evolving the archaic system we have inherited. Education Suspended is a production of Intricate Roots Educational Consulting Services. Our editor and production manager is Katie Kunin. Our producer is Jamie Higa, and our music is provided by Poets Row. Howdy, everyone. Welcome to episode 21. I'm not sure why I just said howdy, but I'm going to go with it. Anyway, we're excited to have you here. Today, we talked to Habiba Grimes, who is the Chief Executive Officer for the Positive Education Program in Ohio. It is a nonprofit agency that provides services for children with severe mental health and behavioral challenges. I really enjoy our conversation. And you'll probably notice right from the beginning that we start off a little bit differently. We don't start off with our introduction because we were actually in the middle of a really intensive conversation about where we're at as a system and just our need to change routines and enable us to be well at work, not outside of work, but when we are there with the students, what do we need to do to make that difference? We also kind of jump into how she makes systems that support the intrinsic aspects of students, which I really love her talking about. And beyond that, just kind of promoting, right, the full life experience of the students and the families in the communities that they live and why that's important. And what does that mean, especially for our marginalized kids? Anyway, I hope you all are doing well. We're excited to have you here again with episode 21. So go ahead and sit back and enjoy Education Suspended with Habiba Grimes. There are moments where it feels like there's no real relief in sight. Just keep dealing with wave after wave of challenge. And it's, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It feels heavy. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In, in all my years working with Bruce, I've never felt more heaviness wow. with the system, systems, but never had more calls when all we did was just let people talk and mm-hmm. give them space and listen. I've, yeah. I've never seen it like this. Yeah. What's the heaviness about? I I think a lot of it maybe comes down to expectation versus reality the expectation for this year was that it would be a lot easier and a lot quote quote more normal and the reality is it's anything but and i think that dis that disconnect between those two has really been heavy on people and you know some of our very best and jessica knows this but some of our very best trainers that i can think of are just ready to change jobs i mean they're they're beat up and tired. And yet when you give them audience and you listen and they, they revive a little bit. So I think we got to be careful about making sure we do that. Yeah, I've been focusing a lot on, I don't even focus is probably not, not the right word. I've been fixated, I would say, like losing sleep at this point on this, uh, the power of, of reward, but deeper than that, the reciprocal piece, the reciprocal notion of reward. Yeah. Because I think for me, that's that's the heaviness. We have We have systems that are not, reciprocating to the teachers so the teachers don't feel a sense of belonging. Um, We have students that aren't capable of giving reciprocal reward back to their teachers because they don't have the the right exposure. They've been out of school for a year and a half. And in turn, then we have teachers that that can't give the reciprocal back to the kids in a way that's developmentally appropriate. So it's like the perfect storm of all three. And then on top of that, right, uh, we're in the midst of just this massive 
um, recognition of like, well, this reciprocal reward has also been then missing for many of our marginalized students, our black students, our brown students, indigenous, LGBT, I mean, you name it. And so it's, it's like a culmination of all this missing relationship that's just, I think, so deep. Anyway, Habiba, thanks for being here. <laughs> I'm glad to be here. And I appreciate this just um, moment of recognition. I find myself when I'm presenting or speaking with groups at this point, um, and for a while now, I open with um, an honoring of our current experience, the weight of grief, the weight of loss, the weight of pain and hurt that all of us are experiencing in a collective way related to the, the pandemic. Mm -hmm. But then those are who, who have existed on the margins, who exist at intersections that are way on the margins, mm -hmm. that the pain and the hurt and the grief and the loss is intensified. And that honoring just feels important right now because we look at the world and it's, you know, certainly capitalist societies like America have been really like revving the engine, trying to get back to a state of quote unquote productivity mm -hmm. and um, earning and, you know, the, get, get this, this machine that has been grinding people down for centuries, get this machine back running at full steam ahead. Yeah. And we, we, we can see the impact of that urgency to get back to this, this um, productivity that does not prioritize our humanity. And we see the impact of that with COVID, like it's not going away, right? It's not being contained. There are multiple factors that contribute to that, but many of them center on, we just want to be who we are, who we were, what we were doing. And we don't want to be managed, controlled, contained in any way by mother nature, this virus, anything. Yeah. And there are those of us who are attuned and realize that this is, this lack of honoring is creating suffering, deeper suffering. It is out of alignment with what human beings need to recover. And it is creating a, a bigger problem. And then, you know, in the midst of this all, right, we've seen this struggle for Black lives intensify. And we got a good eight months of of corporations and, and folks saying, hey, yeah, Black Lives Matter, that those three words are no longer taboo and met with vitriol in and of themselves from entities holding the most power, corporations and so on. So we had this big like moment, momentum and then the adversaries to equity start showing up and, and bringing real power and influence to say, yeah, tone that down. <laughs> We're not going to be talking about structural and systemic racism. We're not going to let that drive decisions. We're not going to um, continue to explore this um, collectivism more deeply. And it's all very painful, very yeah. painful and very disheartening. So I just appreciate the acknowledgement. I appreciate an ability to open up on that note of honoring grief and loss and pain as a result of this pandemic, but also as a result of all of these systemic factors that have come into alignment so that we would be deeply, deeply aware uh, as, a, as a collective. 
Well, I, I know we all realize this, but everything you just said is spilled into education and the, our, our kids are seen as little machines and they're leaking oil and we're trying to mm -hmm. gun the engine again, aren't we? Yeah. Um, to play this fool's errand of catch up. Yeah. Um, so what's happening economically is also happening personally to our kids mm -hmm. and our teachers, obviously. And our teachers. Yeah. Kind of my first level of concern right now is just that that person in front of the classroom is leaking oil and people in power are gunning the engine. And it's it's that's where it's falling apart. I, I just want to acknowledge what you just said <laughs> again. You know, I've started I've, I've had a few in-person chances to talk. And I remember the first time I did what you just said, I said, you know, I just first all acknowledge whose land we're on. And then I want to acknowledge the hard year you've just experienced. And in seconds, I, I saw tears in, in people's eyes in seconds. And I think that's our one of our big first steps right now is doing exactly what you just said, Habib. It's acknowledging what we've been through and what we're in and taking our foot off the gas. Yeah, it's the, hum it's the humanity piece. Yep. And that is, I mean, this is just my opinion, but that is probably scary to a system that seems to have a pretty rich history in trying to take the humanity out of it, right? Yeah. Would you say what, I wanted to write it down, but I couldn't stop listening. What you said about productivity over humanity, or you, you had a really beautiful mm -hmm. way of saying that. Do you remember? Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't remember exactly, but I mean, I, Jessica, you're capturing the, the tone of it, which is we are prioritizing output over human beings, yeah. de demanding that we get back to our normal, which we know produced inequity, which we know produces disease, which we know produces high levels of stress and adversity for children during their development in the, in the places and spaces where they're supposed to be served and supported and, and communing with one another and with adults who care about them. Like we know these things have created harm, but we're, we're pushing toward getting back to this notion of productivity. And I put it in quotes because productive in what way? Producing capital for folks who own things, yeah. producing um, deliverables that let you know systems and policymakers make decisions like achievement versus non-achievement um, in the education space. Mm -hmm. um, we don't we aren't even concerned with producing human centered outputs, right? So it is a culmination of factors that are dehumanizing and very obvious in the dehumanizing nature and impact. And yet we want to we're putting blinders on and just saying keep keep it moving. Yeah. Get back to it. Yeah. And it's not just like, you know, productivity for, for what, right? It's it's for who, <laughs> who yes. we actually worried about. And it's not our marginalized students because they have they have been living in this condition for millennia in education. So they're they're to some degree probably norms to the experience that a lot of people are having for the first time. Right. And so yeah. anyway. Um, absolutely. Well, again, I, I know that we started a little bit different than we usually do, but it's kind of fun. It is fun. And we're, we're so excited to have you here. So how we start all of our podcasts, if it's okay with you, is just for you to introduce yourself to our listeners, what you do, how you got there. And then one of our favorite components is if you would feel comfortable sharing your educational experience, what was, what was that system like for you and kind of how does that influence what you do now? Sure. So my name is Habiba Rashid Grimes. I'm the CEO 
of a child-serving nonprofit in Cleveland, Ohio, serving the greater Cleveland and Northeast Ohio region positive education program. That's my professional self, my professional life. I'm also a mother, a sister, a wife, a friend, and those all influence, those identities all influence my work, my day-to-day life. In our work at Positive Education Program, and we're better known as PEP, so I'll refer to us in that way going forward. Uh, in our work in, in Northeast Ohio, we provide both special education services and mental health services to young people whose needs are exceeding the resources of our school districts in the region or of families and um, community mental health providers who are working with these young people. And so we operate six day treatment centers where young people receive special education services along with group and some individual based mental health services in partnership with school districts. And so the school districts will refer young people to us whose special education needs are exceeding their resources and they'll place those young people with us with the determination of the individualized education program team to serve those young people in a separate facility specifically one of our separate facilities. Um, We operate four day treatment centers that work with young people who are predominantly experiencing complex developmental trauma is how I frame it. We have historically talked about these as typical day treatment centers, which means these young people don't have very complex cognitive and developmental delays, but they do have significant cognitive impact from their experiences. Um, Many, and the majority I should say, come from historically oppressed communities, specifically our black uh, community here in Northeast Ohio. So there's a, a good bit of historical and cultural trauma that has been experienced for these families and young people. And then there is familial uh, trauma and adversity that been, that's been experienced for many of them as well. And we offer uh, our services also to children with significant cognitive delays. So one of our centers really specializes in young people who have profound delays in their cognitive functioning. I should say moderate to severe, really. They have language and they have capacity to learn. Uh, We frankly believe all children have capacity to learn, but they need some additional supports, speech and language services, occupational therapy services, and the specialized care of educators who worked with children with cognitive delays and disabilities to help them achieve to their highest potential. And then we offer uh, services for children on the autism spectrum who are severely impacted by either autism or other developmental delays and needing intensive supports and services to help them uh, communicate uh, their languages. It is very delayed. It is hard for them to communicate their needs with adults. There's significant cognitive delays, as I've mentioned, and so learning is very challenging for for these young people, and there are often significant and serious uh, sensory needs for these young people. And so those are our six-day treatment centers. And then we also offer their intensive community care coordination, a community-based care coordination services for young people using a high-fidelity wraparound model. I want to honor uh, the Alaska Inuit people who drove the wisdom that founded the high fidelity wraparound model. PEP began using that model with a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation grant in 1989. We've been using it ever since to help keep children in their home and community, school, 
when their needs are so intensive that they become involved with systems beyond the education system. So they may have significant needs that are expressing in the mental health system with emergency room visits or psychiatric inpatient care. They may be involved with the juvenile justice system, the Department of Children and Family Services here, our child protective services system. So those systems become involved with these families and then these young people are at risk for removal from their home if their parents are really, parents and caregivers are really struggling to meet those needs. And so our wraparound uh, service helps to support the intrinsic strengths and assets within the child, within the family, within the community, make the necessary linkages so that natural supports can be conserved in that supportive capacity and help keep those young people in the home. Our upstream efforts, as I call them, are in the training and consultation space. And so we do some training and consultation in early childhood spaces, so preschools and daycares. We work with parents with some intensive parent training to help those who have little, the littlest ones, so that zero to five-year-old population. And then uh, we do some training and consultation in school districts. We've been really fortunate. Uh, I've been in this role of CEO the last three years, so I, I don't take all credit. Uh, needless to say, for this organization's 50-year history of meeting the needs of young people in greater Cleveland and Northeast Ohio. The former leaders were really invested in trauma-informed practice long before that was a term. The founders uh, kind of planted the flag in this work with a sense that young people can learn when given the right opportunities and right relationship with adults. That then allowed us to grow this work so that we are certified in the sanctuary model, a systems organizational change model for trauma-informed practice. And we've achieved phase two certification in Bruce Perry and the Child Trauma Academy's neurosequential model of therapeutics. So I was um, reflecting too on this idea of the question around what brought me to this work. Uh, and for me, uh, those who have heard me speak in different spaces have heard me talk about the very real lived experience that I've had in um, witnessing young people struggle and struggle to learn, struggle to achieve, struggle to find success in either learning or community or home environments. And it's because of my own brother who suffered a good deal of adversity uh, as, a, as a young child, as an infant and young child. Um, those, the suffering of our family, I, I see as having roots in our being descendants of enslaved people. Um, my ancestors, the only thing I know is that they have their roots in Alabama and Georgia and Louisiana, we believe. And we know that um, slavery has significant impacts on family structures and, and how uh, folks maintained those critical attachments and relational supports. And so that legacy has certainly impacted my family all the way to my parents' generation, my brother and my, my own experiences. So we grew up in a really stressed household with parents trying to survive uh, vestiges of redlining and economic oppression, educational disparities, and so on. And so my brother particularly experienced a lot of adversity even before he was three years old. Um, we grew up together with my mom as our primary caregiver, and I witnessed her struggle to meet my brother's needs in those days, 80s, late 70s, early 80s, and throughout the 80s, kids were pretty much bad if they weren't doing what they were supposed to do. And he yeah. was a quote unquote bad kid, and he struggled a lot, and our mother out of desperation and frankly terror for his survival for our survival 
she tried all manner of strategies to get him to do the right things, including physical punishment, some harsh physical punishment. And he continued to suffer and struggle all through his adolescence. In finding Pep, for me, quite by accident, I, in responding to a clipping from a newspaper, so that shows how old I am, you know, my first job um, in this space, uh, I got it because a friend gave me a clipping from our local newspaper, The Plain Dealers. She said, you might like this. And I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my own career. I was finishing undergraduate school. I had told everyone I wanted to be a physical therapist. There's a story behind that that I'll say for another time. But ultimately, I did not want to be a physical therapist. I actually, in the course of my college career, fell in love with psychology and child development. And I changed my major and didn't tell anybody. Maybe my, well, my closest friend knew because she gave me this clipping from the newspaper. And I took a job as a one-on-one aide in a classroom in one of our day treatment centers at PEP. And I looked around in that classroom on my first day. I began to hear the stories of those young people and I realized that they are me, they are my brother, they are the young people that I grew up knowing and and having close friendships with. And they are here, they have a space, they have a place where they are cared about and they are having an opportunity to learn and grow and have community and, and not be just pushed out to the margins of peer and adult relationships. And it really, it drew me in to realize that there was a space for someone like my brother, who by that point had developed schizophrenia and was struggling greatly with his young adult life after having struggled as an adolescent and child. And I stuck around. I did whatever I could to stick around Pep. I decided I would become a school psychologist. I met my first school psychologist at Pep, and I thought, I want to do what she's doing. And I started at undergraduate school at Cleveland State University. I'm sorry, I started, what did I say? I started graduate school at Cleveland State University, where they have an amazing program that trains practitioners in both clinical counseling work and um, the special education elements and intervention elements of school psychology work. And of course, the assessment elements. And um, the next thing I know, I'm part-time interning in PEP as a school psychology intern and a local Um, suburb here adjacent to Cleveland, East Cleveland, Ohio, where um, a community was ravaged by the crack epidemic, ravaged by the vestiges of redlining. And I found a home in urban education and fell in love with urban education there. And once I graduated from my graduate program, I did work in our Cleveland Metropolitan School District for a year, but an opportunity opened up for me to come back to PEP. And that's been the story of my career since I've been at PEP 18 years now, kind of worked my way through a clinical track, rose to clinical leadership, have had some amazing experiences and opportunities and decided to um, step into the the ring and, and be considered for the CEO position out of a belief that I might have something to offer in support of the work and, and bringing that work into a 21st century after nearly at that time, 50 years of existence, wanting to see us expand our reach, um, touch the lives of more children before they reach this intensive level of need where we've really focused our energies and our work, support local school districts who are um, moving and advancing equity 
in education, both for special students with special learning needs, but also for children, um, for black and brown children who we know are not achieving at their potential because of systemic factors and wanting to see PEP become collaborators and partners in all of that work, knowing that uh, Northeast Ohio is a place where we have underachieved as a region. Um, we're the poorest big city in the nation. We have this unfortunate distinction uh, that I think healing young people can help to disrupt. But also we need to heal systems. We need to repair systems so that they don't keep crushing and grinding down the human beings who support them who fund them, who resource them. And, you know, sitting in the seat of CEO, right? Like, I don't just get to say these things. I have to live them, you know, and have to find ways to ensure that as a leader, as a leadership team, as, a, as an organization that's leading in trauma-informed care and practice, that we are doing all we can to live up to the standards that we set for the young people we serve and the community that we serve, that spectrum. And as we were speaking a little earlier, it is, it's tough. It's a difficult time to not be complicit in that grinding down of human yeah. life. Yeah, that's a really good point. And you and I kind of prepped for this a couple of weeks ago. And I think that was one of my big takeaways of like, when, you know, I consider myself privileged, even though I identify as a woman of color, right? Being part of the LGBT community, I'm still extremely rooted in privilege. And so it's very easy to get to a complacent of being complicit and just, and I don't even know if maybe complacent is almost <laughs> kind of what I'm going for. I'm like, oh, I don't want to disrupt the boat too much. And that's gone for me, obviously, right now, because <laughs> the boat needs to be moving, but it is really easy to get there. I'm glad that you brought that up. But I think there's this piece. Well, first off, thank you for sharing your story and for and for putting that out there. You use the word survival actually a couple times when talking about your family from that generational perspective from that core immediate family regarding your, you, your, your brother, your mother. And it's actually starting to remind me um, um, from the book written by Dr. Patina Love, we want to do more than survive, right? This, this notion of abolitionist teaching. So I'm wondering if you can actually speak a little bit about the notion of survival as it does pertain to our Brown students, our black students in education and kind of what's the, what's the overlap of that? Yes. I think that we have a long way to go as a system, the education system, in promoting the thriving, the, the full life experience for Black and Brown students. And survival is, I think, rooted in, in this reactivity. So a reaction to a, an oppressive system, a reaction to conditions that are extremely adverse. And so the first thing you want to do is survive, right? You want to live past what's happening to you. You want to get through this adverse experience. And I think what is challenging as we look to the possibilities around thriving, around living full lives, is the adversity doesn't abate in oppressive systems. There is this constant experience of intrusion or loss of agency or injury that is happening over and over again. We use terms like micro microaggressions, right? But that minif minimizes the activation of the stress response that is being triggered for Black and Brown students and for Black and Brown educators and keeping it real, for Black and Brown educational leaders. These systems, I think, need a, a bit of a history lesson to be reminded that 
the, the system as it exists was actually not intended for Black and Brown students to live their full authentic life. It was um, intended to assimilate for our Indigenous young people, force assimilation um, in extreme and violent ways. And um, the intent in early, early public education system was that Black students would not have a presence. Black students would, Black youth would continue to work fields, continue to produce capital and, rev and, and revenue and resources for folks other than their themselves and their families. And so when we think about that root, those roots, that heritage, what is it that we need to do today so that young people are, are able to do more than survive. And I, I so appreciate Dr. Love and her framing around abolitionism in education, because uh, I think it charges us to be very intentional around building liberatory systems, building a liberatory system within education. And we are gonna build it while we're flying, as we say, right? Because we don't have the capacity or we haven't envisioned a way to de dismantle, deconstruct and rebuild and still support the young people who are counting on us. And I think COVID really laid that bare, yeah. just how limited our capacity is to stop and then start without running into inequity, oppression and harm in new, in, in new ways. So we ran into the digital divide. We ran into all of the technology uh, challenges in terms of hardware and access and then broadband, of course, as part of that digital divide. We ran into the realities that so many young people are eating their two, at least two meals a day at school. We ran into the challenge of elders being so essential and necessary to the well-being of of our children when parents and caregivers are working or otherwise unavailable to care for their children. And then this disease is putting the elders at the most risk. And we, frankly, for me, I think we really failed this test as a nation of ensuring that we could build something liberatory in support of young people with a, with a forced stop. And yet, and yet, I know that educators, including my own children's teachers, worked so hard to show up for kids and worked so hard and are still working so hard to be present for kids and be available to kids and families and parents and caregivers who are understanding more deeply the lived day-to-day -day experiences of their students. Uh, and I think the exhaustion and the fatigue that we are witnessing right now for educators is, this, is also a reflection of the struggles that we have in designing a liberatory experience even for the educator so that they can do what they see as needed. I have a friend, a uh, former PEP colleague, who I checked in with a couple times, uh, two or three times during the pandemic in order to just see like, how are your students doing? How are you doing? Um, what are you seeing? And it, it was really heartbreaking to, to hear the struggle. Of, I, I, I know that I can't see these children face to face, but guess what? 
I put on my mask and I went to the porch of my students and I did what I needed to do so they could access the technology, know how to use it, get so I knew they were okay, meet their needs, taking phone calls all times of day and night around the emotional strain and stress. That all for me is indicative of um, the system's struggle really to help educators and, and students do more than just survive. And so we're seeing folks in survival mode and we're seeing the burnout that that is creating for the, the adults. And we're seeing what the scarcity of educational supports, of relational supports for young people over the course of this pandemic, we're seeing the impact of that as they return to the classroom. I, I love the liberatory experience. You brought that term up a couple different times. You know, for the, the classroom teacher like me, who's out there listening to this and wondering, well, what can I do? What, what are those practical, even tiny steps that I, I get it, I understand, you know what Habib is saying, I understand the challenge, and they're thinking, what, what do I do besides give up? I mean, they're, they're, they're facing that kind of challenge themselves, like um, they're at the end of their rope too. And could we maybe talk about that a little bit? What, what you see as practical steps that you might, that are working or being suggested? I think that we are in such a nascent stage in terms of advancing a liberatory design framework in education. And we are seeing retaliation for those efforts, right? So there are states where there are topics and ideas that educators can't even talk about right now without creating risk for themselves. This goes to that point of that constant injury, constant target on your back sentiment that you feel when you are someone who is seeking to survive um, adversity and traumatic stress. And I don't wanna minimize that in this moment. Um, so I wanna say that I show up in this moment as much a student as a teacher um, mm -hmm. in the kind of esoteric sense, because even in our earliest moments of trying to support young people, in their um, agency and their autonomy and showing up in, as their authentic selves in the education system, this, this, this effort is under attack. That said, what I think is essential is first to be sure you are caring for yourself. Being able to show up regulated mm -hmm. in a regulated state with a sense of connection that supports you is so important. I say that as a CEO. I say that for anyone in administration. I say that for educators yourselves. We need routines that enable us to be well in our bodies when we are showing up in front of our students or anyone else that we want to influence and in service to educational systems that are, are liberating for young people and for educators. So I look at the sequence of engagement in this moment, or look to that sequence of engagement, the regulate, relate, reason framework as a really simple way for us to be in good care, as I describe it. And so those things that are essential for our young people are essential for us. Movement, pattern, repetitive rhythmic activities, getting outside. Mm -hmm. 
doing what we can to eat those foods that are going to be nourishing to us. Like these are the basics, but for real, if we don't do these things, we won't be well. I think about relationship. I think about what I describe as a constellation of care. And I too show up in this moment with a whole lot of privilege. My privilege allows me to access what I call a constellation of care, who are professional folks, who are paid folks, who are supporting my well-being. Therapy, (laughs) counselors, therapists, psychologists, folks who create space for us to access mental health care. That is important. It is important to be in community with folks who can coach and teach and help us develop new skills, new strategies. So in that mental health space, but there's also professional resources that we can access to refine our practices, refine ourselves in service to the young people who we care about. And then there's what I call a village of folks who these are, these are not paid professionals, so to speak, don't need your insurance card to talk to these folks, but these are your supporters, the people who champion you, who champion the young people you serve. So being in community with folks who have some capacity or will to understand that this is an intense level of extreme and profound stress that the education system and those who operate within it are experiencing right now. And so being in a village of people who get it, who champion you, who support you, who support the work you're doing, who are are also themselves resources of um, care and resources of ideas, uh, but mostly who help support your well your well being. Just a space to be in again good care to talk or not to be present and um, support some of the regulating things that you're doing, like your exercise or your your eating routine or your hobby development those things. And then I do encourage folks to deepen your understanding for what you are up against. Once you are regulated, once you've got a good source of care for your medical and physical well-being, once you have that village, no matter how big or small, deepen your understanding for what we are dealing with, because our condition as a system and, and as individuals working within a system, this isn't some happenstance like, well, what? Do you, how the heck did we get here? No, there is a pathway that led us to this moment, mm-hmm. to this place. Um, and so there are books that I encourage folks to check out. So they learn things they didn't learn in the course of maybe their high school or graduate or undergrad or graduate experiences. Um, the redlining, folks need to read about redlining. You need to understand how we got in this condition where our urban centers and communities around them are so under-resourced in comparison with school districts that are predominantly white. Understand that disparity in resources so you just know what what this is that you're you're dealing with. So um, The Color of Law is one title that I share with folks when I speak about um, the systemic factors that are influencing our experiences in education today. Uh, another title that I know folks have heard is uh, Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. If you work in communities where there are, uh, scratch that, no matter where you are, I also encourage you to read Isabel Wilkerson's uh, The Warmth of Other Sons mm-hmm. so that we understand the migratory patterns that were necessitated by violence and terrorism targeting Black Americans following the period of enslavement and throughout 
the, the 19th century, the 20th century, and arguably even still today, there are patterns of violence that create stress and create adversity in the communities that we serve. Dr. Bettina Love's book, We Want to Do More Than Survive, uh, is another title. A hopeful title I want to share is Cultivating Genius by Goldie Muhammad, where she describes the legacy and history of literary societies that uh, supported Black literacy and Black thought and intellectual exploration, even while learning to read was a crime for Black Americans. We have as much history of survival as we have of, and, and more than survival, right? Like, Cultivating Genius lifts up these literary societies that were really beautiful places for intellectual dialogue, for creativity, for uh, the advancement of the humanity of Black folks in the midst of really desperate circumstances. And that's a beautiful heritage. And we should know about that heritage. We should know about that no matter our racial or ethnic identity, because the strategies that have been historically used to subvert the systems of oppression that have existed within our country over our history, they can inform us today as we show up seeking to be anti-racist, trauma-informed, healing-centered. These ancestors are, are there to, to yeah. teach us and to guide us. And we kind of have to go looking for them a little bit to know that there is more that we're able to do. Um, we, we don't have to be in a state of hopelessness and despair because there is a roadmap for our resistance. There is a roadmap for our freedom that exists for us to tap into, um, a blueprint more so perhaps than a roadmap, but they exist. And so tapping into that and um, yeah, tapping into to these writers and thinkers and collectors of wisdom of historical wisdom to inform us so we understand the situation we're in. And so we understand the ways that we might influence the system and influence the, the conditions and the direction of a more humane way of teaching and a more humane way of being in, in education. i just just going to back up one step and love what you said about don't go to that step until you're regulated and feel safe in your relationships and then take on the challenge of, of many of the, the thoughts that you just shared with us. I loved how you, you gave us that roadmap there too. First things first, don't blast yourself with new, new thoughts and new knowledge when you're not ready for it. Um, and then you'll reject it or, you know, I, I think that's what happens quite often. I just love that you gave us that sequence of how to engage and eventually get to those wonderful books that you discussed that I'm going to grab a couple of them. I have read a couple of them and, and we're just Isabel Wilkerson. And I think people would love both of those books. And I just glad you mentioned the warmth of other sons, because I think that's the right title. Um, yes. Because it's, it's, it's such a story of kind of migration and, and it, it's a missing piece from, from my, you know, privilege. I, I didn't get any of that. I, I didn't know any of it. I mean, cast as well. There's just so much there that um, that's a big change we need to make now is just get ourselves educated. Yet, I, I want to also be thankful to you again, say get regulated, feel supported, and then take on the new stuff. Yes, 
or new yes. to you. <laughs> new to you. <laughs> new yeah. to us. And, and another bit of advice along each of those uh, pathways to understanding, pathways to a healed way of, of being is grace, self-compassion, yeah. be gentle with yourself you know, we got to all be more regulated. Just this whole circumstance is creating dysregulation for everyone. So we, we need that regulation. But even in my own life, my habits of care, self-care get disrupted all the time. So I have to keep turning attention to that, making sure we get to our doctor, getting to a doctor who listens to us and believes us, you know, that mm-hmm. again, that constellation of care, not easy. And if you exist on the margins or at intersections that are even more extremely marginalized, man, finding a a psychotherapist or, or counselor, finding a medical practitioner for yourself, for your family, that is not easy stuff. You know, the, the, the work is, is there for real. It's not trite mm-hmm. and it needs real intention because our days, as we know, will pull us back and we'll just be trying to fight the wind. <laughs> yeah, I'm back to survival. I yeah. found myself saying more times than not when I'm ending keynote presentations these days of just I thank everybody and then I'm like please find some grace right yeah. find some grace for you within the system that you're working right now and so I'm I'm glad that you brought that up for us to reflect I want to add a little bit you after Steve asked that question about like what do we do to bring this theme of liberation into our rooms as educators you said we need routines that enable us to be well. And I actually want to push a little bit more, right? We need routines that enable us to be well within the system. Yes. I think what I appreciate about everything that you said was it was all fine and dandy, but there was also the, the underlying context of like, well, a lot of that was outside of work. Yes. And then you started getting to of like, well, then we need the coaching in the room, the consultations in the room for the support, but we are, we are reaping the negative experiences of, having a, a, an environment around our educators that does not promote regulation for teachers. Mm-hmm. We are, it, it is just being thrown in our face right now. We have a massive teacher shortage. It's about to get worse. It's, it's more than just outside of work. We need to have routines around the teachers in the day, the duty day that promotes our well-being. And it has to start now. Agreed. Agreed. I, I can't add anything more to that. That is... It's essential. I'm going to ask you both to add one more thing to that, because I wanted to ask both of you about, you know, this community of care that schools can be. And I, I, I heard Habiba mention community many times. Jessica and I have talked about it many times. How about a couple of practical steps there? Or what, what do you see as really needed within the system? I love it that, Jessica, how you framed it. Um, within the system, the care, the community care that we desperately need to serve to not only survive, but eventually to thrive. What would be a good step? I see a good bit of the responsibilities for creating systems of care within the the education environment as sitting with educational leaders. So some of this is creating space or working together with educators to determine what are those needs that we can address because educational leaders are just as compressed and stressed Yes. in different ways, but equally um, under a lot of pressure. And so you're, you're again, looking to these um, disruptor in, a, in the sense of a justice and healing centered disruption that is needed. And so how do we 
create that. And I see educational leaders as having a big role in communicating and engaging with teachers and being in community with teachers in order to identify, we know this system has got a vice grip on us, but where can we where can we nudge this? Where can we be like those, those founders of Black literary societies and create some space? Mm-hmm. We need to do some of that as leaders. And then I think for educators, I think, you know, choosing your village carefully becomes important to me. Where, how, who you are seeking counsel, where you are engaging, because we are in this really stressful time. And some folks are in full-on fight or flight some folks are feeling like the enemy is the children, uh, are the children, the enemies are parent caregivers, the enemies are uh, the leadership, and that can become really toxic. And so what I would suggest is just finding community with folks who are focused on the action of healing and not blaming, because we're vulnerable. And we, and you, we see this in education where we turn on the people who are also being impacted by the system, the children, the parent caregivers, the leadership, our colleagues, and we get into a tiff within rather than looking out at the system and knowing that's the problem. These structures are the problem and we probably can't fix those today. We got work to do today with young people. So what what is needed for us to be able to show up in a way that honors them rather than blames them for the conditions that they find themselves in? I love it. I also, what I've been doing a lot right now, speaking of structure, right, is I actually, when I'm in a classroom consulting with a teacher, well, I'll actually just, we'll just look at the actual schedule. Because I think to your point, there's a component of it when you're trying to make change, it can just be really overwhelming, right? A teacher does not have the capacity to change the the whole schedule of the school. So we focus on where do they have agency and that's within their Mm -hmm. day-to-day routine. And so, for example, the theme is trying to find flow, right? So if I'm a teacher that has a 60 minute, you know, literacy block. It's the notion of that's just not dysregulating for the kid right now. That's also dysregulating for you. Right. I always used to joke of like, you know, the, the, the science teacher that a middle schooler gets at the beginning of the day is not the same science teacher that they get at the end of the day, because it's just a long day for adults and kids. So we look at their daily schedule and just find where, where can we find flow in your room? Where are their regulatory options for you and for the kids? Because that the power lies in the teacher modeling the regulatory component. So the Mm -hmm. power comes from a teacher acknowledging, hey, 60 minutes is a lot right now. We're going to take 15 minutes of this to just to reflect, to get outside, to do nothing, right? I've been doing a ton of that lately of like giving yourself grace because you're not going to be able to do that without grace because you're doing it. You're going to start feeling the pressure of the system. There's probably going to be some guilt that come in teachers, you know, this bell to bell mentality. So if you break away from that, there's a lot of guilt. So starting with grace and then finding the time in the day um, to regulate you and your kids and modeling that is just a big thing that we've been doing. Right. And putting your two comments together, if you can find the educational leadership that will give you the grace in the space. Yeah. You can do what Jessica, you can find the flow in the day. I, I, I mean, I experienced that myself. Yes. I know how that feels and it's very freeing. It does allow for the care of the teacher as much as the care of the kids. I'm sad to see this kind of come to an end. Thank you for joining us. We it's could have, been my pleasure. This could be a six hour podcast, but we won't do that. <laughs> Thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for your drive and passion to change the system. Yeah, it's just been an honor. It's been an honor to kind of sit down with you and connect. 
Thank you. I feel equally honored to be with you, grateful for the leadership that you and Steve are offering to educators and and honestly modeling for all of society. I think there are moments where educators can, our voices can be elevated in a way that is instructive for the world. And um, I feel like this is one of those um, vehicles, your podcast is one of those vehicles for that to happen. Yeah. Well, I'm equally thankful. And it's, it's a privilege for me to sit and talk with Habiba anytime. I've, I get to work with some of her people and I know what a good leader she is. I know your leadership means a ton in that organizations. Thank you. Thank you. I, I'm grateful to call this beautiful city home and um, inspired by the people here and charged up, you know, to, to stay in the, in the effort. I don't want to call it a fight. I want to call it an effort. I want to call it a calling home, a reclamation project of our humanity. Yeah. I'm excited to do that here in this city in this time. Well, keep it up. You're doing an awesome job. That's a beautiful Thank you. ending. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks, Abiba. Thank you all.